For the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing our attention on God's providence. The providence of God refers to God's governance of the events and outcomes of life so that they accomplish God's purposes. In chapter 23, the emphasis was upon God's providence in delivering David from the hand of Saul. In chapter 24, the thought was that the importance of properly reading or discerning God's providence. We noted that God's providence can easily be misunderstood, and people make rationales for their sinfulness based on God's providence. We can correctly read God's providence through a commitment to God's word and a faithful adherence to our Christian duty. And then we can also correctly read God's providence by following the example of godly individuals who correctly respond to God's providence in similar circumstances. Today, we seek to understand the providence of God in yet a more detailed way. God's providence that prevents us from sinning. God may and does, in his grace, intervene in the events and circumstances of our lives to help us from sinning. I'm referring to that as the preventative providence of God. God's activity in our lives to keep us from sinning. Twice in our text, specific mention is made of God keeping David from sinning. And these two verses become the key interpretive elements of the passage. If you'll notice verse 34, where it reads, For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, and now this phrase, who has restrained me from hurting you. Those are David's words. God had restrained him from hurting Abigail. And now down to verse 39. When David had heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I have received at the hand of Nabal, now this phrase, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. So the emphasis of this passage is God's intervention, God's keeping David from sinning. <coughs> so this morning, we want to look at how God does that. How does God intervene in the life of David and then how in turn does God providentially work in our lives to keep us from sinning as well? We begin by looking at the provocation for David to commit sin. Why was David tempted? Well, in verse 2, we are introduced to a very wealthy man who had a great deal of livestock. Verse 2, it says there was a man in Manon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now we are introduced to the man and his wife in verse 3. Now the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. He and his wife were exact opposites, the end of verse 3. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David instructs his men to go to Nabal to request food and tells them what to say in verses 4 and 5. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, 
and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Well, the men respectfully greet Nabal and inform him how David and his men supplied protection for Nabal's sheep herders and had done them no wrong. Verses 6, 7, and 8. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace to your house. Peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. And now they request food of Nabal. The end of verse 8. Please give whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son. So they anticipate, because of the goodness that they had shown to Nabal and to his sheep uh, herders, and that nothing had happened ill towards them, that in appreciation, Nabal would respond and give them food. So they wait for a response, verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. Now we have Nabal's response. Nabal insults David and shows him no respect, in verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. And so he belittles David. And Nabal refuses to give them any food, verse 11. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? The young men returned to David, verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. Now we have the plan that would have resulted in David's committing sin. David became so enraged at the unexpected and unwarranted affront of the arrogant individual that he intends to kill Nabal and all of Nabal's servants, verse 13. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. Every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained in the baggage. Now, we must understand at this point that it would have been wrong for David to have killed Nabal and Nabal's servants. He had no such right to do so. But you need to understand that there are some similarities that existed between Saul and Nabal. And it helps us to understand why David was so outraged and provoked. First, both refused to give the honor to David that he deserves. We're going to find out later in this passage that Abigail knows that David is to be the next king of Israel. It appears there was common knowledge in Israel at this point that David had been anointed, and that David was to be the next king. And yet, no respect is shown for David as the future king. In that, he is much like Saul. And secondly, both Saul and Nabal failed to recognize what David had done for them. Saul, and all the protection that David had granted and fought the battles and done all the bidding of Saul, and now this Nabal, who uh, David had provided protection for, who oversaw the uh, shepherds, 
and took nothing from them, took no pay, and returned. Both did not appreciate or recognize what David had done. And it appears that David had his full of all that had been done to him. David's been on the run for a long period of time. David's been undergoing a lot of stress. And it seems like this is a breaking point for David. He wants to kill Nabal and his servants. But there is also a strong dissimilarity between Saul and Nabal. The dissimilarity is this. Saul had been anointed as king. And as such, if you remember last week, when we were talking about God's providence, and what kept David from killing Saul, even though Saul was hiding out in the very cave where David was, and everyone was saying to him, this is God's will for you, this is obvious, take the life of Saul. David said, I cannot stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. He said, I I can't kill the king of Israel and not be held accountable for this wrongdoing. And so he spared the life of Saul. The notable difference is Nabal is not the king of Israel. Nabal has no claim to fame except that he's rich. He has no position. He has no privilege. And David wrongfully thought that it was within his prerogative to take the life of Nabal. For here is a prospective uh, servant of the kingdom who dishonors David, who will be the future king. Here is where the preventative providence of God and his grace comes into play. For God is going to restrain David from taking the lives of Nabal and his servants. That's what we want to focus on. And in particular, how does God do that? How does God accomplish that? How does God change the heart and mind of David so that he does not commit this great sin? So we'll take some time looking at the preventative providence of God to keep David from committing sin. First, Nabal's own servant intervened by speaking to Abigail, Nabal's wife, verses 14 through 16. But one of the young men, that is one of the young men of Nabal, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at him. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Then they implore her to act, verse 17. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. They could see the handwriting on the wall. They knew what was going to come next. Uh, They thought that they're going to come down and take this food from us, and it's not going to be well. So they inform Abigail and say, think about this. What are you going to do? Unfortunately, Nabal cannot be reasoned with, end of verse 17. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. 
So this, this servant isn't going to go to Nabal. He's not going to say to him, you want to rethink this? You want to think about your response? No, he said he's a worthless man. He's good for nothing. You can't even speak to him. He's never going to listen. It's up to you. So Abigail has food prepared for David and his men. Verse 18 and 19. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. Abigail does all this without her husband's knowledge, end of verse 19. But she did not tell her, her husband Nabal. Then she proceeds to go out and to meet David, verse 20. And she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. So behold this, look at this, look at this meeting. They just happen to run into each other. Then we're reminded of what David's intentions were, verse 21. Now David had said, now this is not what David says to her, this is, this is an insert to help us understand what is taking place. Now, David had said, surely in vain have I quenched, uh, excuse, have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I have so much as one male of all who belong to him. So it's reminding us of not only the attitude, but the intent of David. As David is coming down this mountain, he has one thought in mind, and that is Nabal is going to die, and I'm going to wipe out all his servants. That's the plan. That's the agenda. That's what David is all about. Now we have this remarkable encounter with Abigail. Abigail first shows great respect for David in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey. And now the homage and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Certainly a far different response than Nabal had given. Second, she seeks to remove the guilt from her husband. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Don't Take this out on my husband, she says. She intercedes on her husband's behalf. Third, she encourages David not to waste his time in thinking about Nabal. Verse 25, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal in Hebrew means foolishness or fool. So here is this fool. Don't pay him any mind, she says to David. He's not worth it. Don't get 
upset over him. D, then she explains that she had nothing to do with the decision to deny David food. End of verse 25. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Then she appeals to what the Lord has done in keeping David from the guilt of murdering Nabal. Verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil unto my Lord be as Nabal. Here we are introduced to God's providence in the middle of verse 26. Because the Lord has restrained you. The Lord has intervened. The Lord has kept you from taking Nabal's life. Now, remember that in this whole account, there is not a single mention of God's activity. There's not a word about what God is doing in this circumstance. Nevertheless, Abigail recognizes the invisible hand of God at work. And I mentioned to you two weeks ago that that is an image that the Puritans would use to describe God's providence, God's invisible hand at work. And the whole point is it's invisible. You can't see it except through the eye of faith. You can't be aware of it unless you simply understand God's oversight and rule of this world to realize that he is the king of kings, that he is lord of lords, he is sovereign, and nothing happens outside of his working and purpose and grace. And so, it is God who had restrained David from committing murder. Now further, Abigail encourages David concerning his future in verses 27 and 28. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. She reminds David that the Lord will protect him in verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. God will watch over you. God will protect you. God will defend you against your enemies. These are the words of Abigail to David. She also reminds David that he's going to be ruler over Israel one day. Verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel. Again, evidently, it's common knowledge in Israel at this point that David is anointed as the next king. She says, 
God is going to keep his word. David, you are going to be the next king over, over Israel. And again, if Abigail knew it, Nabal should have known it. And it's what makes his response to David so egregious. David is encouraged to live his life without regrets if he doesn't take matters into his own hands. Verse 31, my Lord should have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation for himself. So she says, David, if you take this man's life and the life of his servants, when you become king, you're going to have all kinds of regret. You're going to recognize that you killed this man, that you murdered these innocent people, that you've done wrong. It's going to be a stain on your kingship. It's going to be a stain on your kingdom. David, you don't want that. Trust God. Put it into God's hands. Don't work out your own salvation. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't act like God. God is the one who makes such decisions. And then Abigail asks to be remembered favorably when God intervenes for David and protects him. End of verse 31. When the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. So be kind to me in the future when you see these things come to pass. So now we have David's response to all that Abigail had said. First, David praises God that God had sent Abigail to him. This is the first step in recognizing the preventative providence of God in the life of David, verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, now these important words, who sent you this day to me. David said to Abigail, God is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord. How good the Lord is that God sent you to me today. Now, remember, there is no mention of God prior to Abigail's coming to David. There was no revelation that said, Abigail, I need you to go to David and you need to say thus and thus. No. There was no prophet sent to Abigail to tell her in the authority of God that she was to go and meet David and speak in such a manner. No. There, there was no visible, tangible recognition of God at work. But he was. But he was. This wasn't just a thought that came into Abigail's mind. This wasn't just a very wise woman. This isn't just good luck or good fortune. David recognized this is God. 
This is God. Or as we are apt to say, this is a God thing. Without verse 32, this passage could be read in an entirely different light. All of our attention could have been focused on the wise actions of a discerning wife. God's activity could be easily missed or ignored, which is the first great truth for us to keep in mind. And that is, so too, we can easily miss God's providence in our lives. If we are not mindful of our knowledge of who God is and how God directs and ordains the circumstances of our life, it's easy to live life without taking God into consideration. It's easy to look at life and think about how lucky we've been or how fortunate things have turned out or look at what my wisdom or my knowledge has achieved rather than to give God the glory as the one who is behind all the good gifts that come for, to us, the God who is invisible. We must understand the goodness of God in the events and circumstances of our life. God is to be praised for that goodness. Now, God had used Abigail to keep David from committing murder, to be sure. Abigail had a unique relationship to God, verse 33. It says, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you. David is saying in these words, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you. He's saying that she lives in a state of blessedness. That God had blessed her. That the discretion that she demonstrated was a discretion that ultimately came from God. The difference between the woman and her husband was the grace of God. Had it not been for God, she would have been as foolish as Nabal was. This wasn't some innate ability that she possessed, but rather she was blessed of God. God had granted to this woman incredible understanding to know what to do. And furthermore, she had, he had blessed her. He had looked upon her with favor. You know, I can imagine that Nabal would not have been the easiest man in the world to be married to. And she probably could have looked at life as being pretty miserable and filled with heartache and grief. Who knows how many situations she had to mop up for Nabal. And yet, she was blessed. She was blessed. So David is telling her that you're fortunate. God is at work in your life. God has gifted you. God has made you who you are. Verse 33, blessed be your discretion, blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Nevertheless, it was God that had done a work in changing David's heart. Verse 34, for as surely as the Lord lives. Who has restrained me from hurting you? 
So while it was Abigail that was used of God, it was God himself who had actually restrained David, not only from killing Nabal and killing his servants, but in harming her as well. Evidently, in some way, David was planning to take vengeance on all that was associated with Nabal. Here we learn that God is able to accomplish a multitude of purposes in his providence and his grace. God is not only in the work of the life of David, God is at work in the life of Abigail as well. He was protecting his own. He was helping his own. Our God is truly amazing. Abigail was greatly used of God, verse 34. For as surely as the Lord lives, the God of Israel lives, who had restrained me from hurting you. Now this, unless you had hurried and come down to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. He says if it was not for God's providence of working through Abigail, David would have committed this great sin and blood be on his hands. This was a reminder to both of them. I'll continue on and then make all the application at the end. David then sends Abigail back home, verse 35. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. I'm going to let him go. I'm going to turn around and go back. And everything that you have asked of me, I'm going to do. So Abigail goes back home. Nabal is having a drunken feast, so she waits till the next day to talk to Nabal, verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Don't miss that. Like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the next morning. God's judgment brought against Nabal. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. He died. And so that we do not miss it, that was an act of God. Verse 38, the Lord struck Nabal. Now again, again, when Nabal died ten days later, there is no writing in the heavens. The Lord has judged Nabal. The Lord has proclaimed his disfavor upon Nabal, and he died. No. He had a stroke or something, and ten days later he dies. 
And it could easily go by one's notice that God is in this, that this is God's judgment, this is God's doing, except the Word of God reveals it to us. So once again, it's so important for us to stop and consider the events and circumstances of life and how they play out in keeping with God's word. This was God's activity. David's response when he hears the news of Nabal's death, the first response is that God had avenged avenged the wrong of David, verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult that I received at the hand of Nabal. Then down a little further, the Lord has returned the evil Nabal on his own hand. So David recognized this as God's judgment. David recognized this as God's justice. David recognized this as God's doing. And then he praised God that God had kept David from making, taking matters in his own hands. Verses 39, verse 39. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. And then says this, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. David acknowledges that it had been wrong. It would have been a sin for him to kill Nabal. And now he's so thankful that he didn't lay a hand on Nabal. But he learned a great truth that day. That is that he didn't need to. He didn't need to. God was very capable taking care of David. We already saw how God took care of David in preventing Saul from killing David, how he preserved his life. God could also mete out the the justice that was necessary in David's life and in his kingdom. It says at the end of verse 2, Excuse me, the end of verse 39. The Lord has returned the evil Nabal on his own head. And David provided for Abigail as he said he would. She says, remember me. He said, I will. And then at the end of verse 39, it says, Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Verse 40, when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David is sent to us to take you to him as his wife. She rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. And her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. That's story. That's God's preventative grace in the life of David. So, what are the takeaways? Well, first, once again, the main point of the narrative is God's preventative providence. How God graciously intervened in the life of David to keep him from committing this great sin. Don't lose sight of that. One should note that there is not anything particularly unusual in this narrative. Had not the passage pointed out God's activity, one could easily attribute all that took place simply to a wise and tactful woman who approached David, who in humility 
responded in kindness and mercy to her. And nothing more. But there is so much more. There is God behind it all. And what we need to realize in our lives is God behind it all. How God is constantly watching over us, constantly protecting us, constantly intervening in our lives. We must understand that by faith and be encouraged and strengthened. So too in our own lives, it's easy to miss the goodness of God in the intervention in our lives. The little ways in which he keeps us from sinning. How does God keep David from murder? Well, God used the words of a very godly woman to dissuade David of his wrongdoing. Of course, David could have ignored those words. He could have simply continued on with his plan, but he didn't, by the grace of God. We too must be sensitive to the Spirit of God and recognize the preventative providence of the goodness of God in putting people in our lives to help us fight against sin. God has given to us many godly parents, parents who warn us, parents who instruct us, parents who confront us about the wrongdoing that we may intend to do, friends and their godly influence or authority figures. I would invite you this morning to just reflect for a moment in your own life. Think about circumstances in which God has providentially kept you from sin. How God wonderfully intervenes in our lives to keep us from doing what we should not do. Remember there was a a striking circumstance in my own life when I was a student at uh, Kutztown and uh, I went out with this girl and I brought her home and uh, she was in my living room and my mother was in the kitchen and uh, she said uh, Take me back to the dorm. I want to change. You have to understand, my mother was virtually deaf. If you were to say anything to her, you almost had to scream at her. In fact, she had this magnify, this uh, speaker on the telephone that would amplify when it rang. And every time I talked on that phone, I had to hang it out here because it was just so loud. My mother couldn't hear anything. But in the providence of God, she heard that. To this day, I can't explain how she heard that conversation. And I remember as we were leaving, she took me aside and she said, Cal, I don't know what this girl's intention is, but don't you go to her room. I said, okay. She said, will you promise me? And I said, okay, I promise you. I won't go to her room. I got back to the dorm and three times she encouraged me to go to her room. 
thought my mother was wise. I was kind of dumb and didn't think anything of it, but perhaps there was more intended. I don't know. But I thank my Lord for a godly mother who was concerned and gave me some instruction that may well have kept me from committing a sin that I would regret terribly to this day. Think in your own life of situations, plans that you had made to do wrong, and something happened, something interrupted, something went awry that kept you from fulfilling that sinful desire. People, that's the marvelous grace of God. That's his goodness to us. That's his blessing upon us. When God so works in our hearts and minds that he brings us to repentance before we commit the act, before we engage in the sin, that's how good and that's how great our God is. David had been told that he would be kept from regret in the future. She said, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. We don't want regrets. We don't want pangs of conscience. We don't want the misery and the hardship of the consequences of sin. May we heed early. May we be quick to listen. May we accept the rebuke. May we acknowledge the scripture. May we not have to be often warned. David said, be not like the horse or the mule whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. He says to the Lord, with mine eye I will instruct thee. That eye, it's just God looking at us and just the mere look teaches us what we should do. I've used this illustration before of when I was in high school, sitting in church apart from my father. And if I was doing something he didn't like, he would look over at me and get my attention just by looking at me. And I knew it meant you better settle down or you're going to get in trouble when you get home. All it took was a look. And we'd be so sensitive to the Spirit of God that all it takes is a look. And it keeps us from sin. Be thankful for God's preventative grace in your life. David learned a great deal about trusting God and not making, taking matters into his own hand. God can fight for us 
God had struck Nabal dead. Matthew chapter, excuse me, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 38, it says, and about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The Lord struck Nabal and he died. That may not seem real significant to you, but let me foreshadow you chapter 26. For in chapters 25, excuse me, 24, 25, and 26, in each of them, David spares someone's life. And in chapter 26, even though Saul is repentant in chapter 24, he's back to his same old tricks in chapter 26. And once again, David's in a situation where he could kill Saul, and I'll look at that in much more detail after the Easter season. But he doesn't. And he says this, in 1 Samuel 26.10, And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David says, I don't, I don't need to take matters in my own hands. I don't need to kill Saul. Either he'll die in a battle, or uh, he will come to die, or Lord will strike him. It's the exact same word for striking Nabal. Because of Nabal's experience, it was just one more brick in the wall of David's understanding of who God is. And he said, God struck Nabal. God can strike down Saul. And one of the great blessings of God's preventative grace and providence in our lives is that we can learn. We can learn. We can apply. We can grow as we become more and more sensitive to sin and recognize more and more of what God spares us from. The wisdom in following God and not living lives full of regret, that it bolsters us for even greater challenges and tests in our lives. God is good. May we not lose sight of God's preventative grace in our lives. Reflect on what God has kept you from and give him praise. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. Lord, we acknowledge that our hearts are full of deception, even deceive our own selves. And Lord, I'm thankful that by your grace you reveal our hearts to us. You use messages to bring us under conviction. You use words of exhortation by family members and friends and parents to instruct us in the right way. Lord, you bring sovereign circumstances into our lives where we plan certain things and those plans fall through, through interruptions, through phone calls, through situations of which we have no power, but you do, and you have kept us. We thank you for that mercy. We thank you for that grace. And Lord, may we not be insensitive to that grace. May, may we not spit upon it. But Lord, when we are convicted, may we quickly turn. 
May we not harden ourselves against your goodness and mercy to us. May we be quick to repent, even as David was, even before we commit the act. Help us, O God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.